You know, I don't think we always think about it, but uh, Christianity always has been, always will be a dramatically radical lifestyle. When you think about it, Christianity is really not for the faint of heart. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires not only courage, but commitment. Too often, I think the church is guilty of propagating the idea that God's objective for us is to be carbon copies of Ward and June Cleaver. You know, kind of like they represent the ultimate in Christian living, but nothing against Beaver Cleaver's parents, uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. In the next few weeks, we're going to see that God has a desire for each and every one of us, and that is to live a life that is far beyond that which we have kind of grown comfortable living as we park our posteriors in the pew every week. See, being a Christian is not about playing it safe. It's about living life on the edge. It's about participating in a revolution that will overthrow the kingdom of this world and usher in the kingdom of God. I, for one, choose not to play it safe. I'm going to read you an email I got this morning, and it struck me, and it, written by a friend, and it really has to do with somebody who is playing it safe. He said, I just had breakfast with a guy who has struggled with his church. It just doesn't get off the ground. I have attended his services twice. I know the problem. He doesn't get any wind under his wings. He won't allow the thing to find lift. He insists on controlling everything. If it's not on today's worship agenda, it doesn't happen in his church. He is fearful of losing control. So since he doesn't actually know how to fly the plane, he keeps it on the ground, rumbles to one end of the runway and then back again every Sunday from 10.30 to noon. No spirit wind, lots of instructions on the intercom on what a good airplane is like and where to find the good seats. In his heart, he blames the passengers for his lack of flight. The Holy Spirit sits in row 54E next to the window instead of in the pilot's chair while we have the flight attendants once more taxi out and back one more Sunday. When I read that email this morning, I just, you know, he actually added at the end, he says, you know who I'm talking about, and, and I do. It, it doesn't make any difference to you who it is. But I responded to him and I said, unfortunately, I know too many people like that. Too many people who are just playing it safe. They're like gathered together in their comfortable little cocoon and never really take off. Now, in the reading, and it struck me again as Jimmy read it again this morning, it talked about, you know, the presence of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that puts wind under our wings and moves us from being comfortable, casual Christians to being those who are radical, who live a radical lifestyle. Well, during the next few weeks, we're going to see that Christianity is not some sort of a tame, little, middle-class, middle-of-the-road kind of thing we involve ourselves in once a week. It's really life in the fast lane. God challenges everybody to adopt a radical lifestyle, to live a, a life of radical honesty to embrace His radical mercy and to pursue radical spirituality and to be driven, really, by radical ambition. 
And today we want to just see how this process starts. But I'm going to take you back first to the year 1999. In 1999, Time Magazine named what they called the Person of the Century. What they did was go back the previous 100 years, and they found 100 most significant people of the previous 100 years, and they chose one person who they considered to be the greatest. Here's a quiz, quiz question, a little trivia. Anybody know who they chose to be the man of the 20th century? Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein. Now, of course, I'd have chosen the guy who developed that system that guarantees pizza delivery in under 30 minutes, but uh, I, I didn't get the vote. So, But who would you say is the greatest person of all time? Now, some of you might say, it's probably my big brother, since mom always tried to get me to be more like him. Uh, some of you may think the greatest person who ever lived was the person who had your job before you got it. In fact, I know a lot of pastors who think the greatest person must surely have been the guy who was there before them. Some of you might actually think that the greatest person who ever lived is the person your spouse thought he or she was marrying when they married you. So who was the greatest person who ever lived? And I'm going to lead you into According to Jesus, who was it? It was John the Baptist. Jesus is quite an authority on the subject, and the greatest person he said that ever lived was John the Baptist. Matthew 11, 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than than John the Baptist. Now, when you think about it, John the Baptist was a pretty amazing guy. Before Jesus began his ministry, John preached out in the Judea desert, challenging people to repent of their sins and to be baptized. Now, the fact that he was calling them to be baptized, I find very interesting, because Jesus still hadn't said, Go ye therefore and baptize all nations. And here's John baptizing people. The interesting thing is that they were baptizing people before Jesus ever said it, but it was a Gentile ritual. When a Gentile converted to Judaism, they were initiated into that faith through, really, full immersion. And that baptism symbolized that this convert had renounced his Gentile ways and had fully embraced life as a Jew. In fact, when a Gentile was baptized, they were referred to as, quote, a brand new person, one day old, end of quote. But see, the interesting thing is John was not preaching to Gentiles. He was preaching to Jews, and he was telling these Jews they, too, had to be baptized. He was saying, guess what, folks? Being Jewish isn't enough. You need to repent of your sin and give your heart completely to God. If Jay the Bee was out somewhere preaching today, he probably would say, you know, folks, being Lutheran is not enough. Being Baptist is not enough. You must repent of your sin and give your heart completely to God. Now, thousands of people were flocking out to Bethany beyond the Jordan to hear John preach. Many of them actually confessed their sins and were baptized right then and there in the Jordan River. Now, if you paid attention to what Jimmy read to you before, John was a pretty interesting character. In every sense of the word, you'd say he was radical. 
He can be, best be summed up this way. He was not the kind of guy that mothers hope show up at home to date their daughter. Mark says in verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. That's not your usual Mediterranean diet. Bugs and honey. But it wasn't the fact that John lived out in the desert. It wasn't the fact that he wore funny clothes or he ate strange food that made him a holy man. It was his message and his lifestyle that made the difference. In fact, John the Baptist, I think, is really the prototype for what God wants you and me to be. Now, today we're going to take a little bit closer look at John. And we want to see how we can imitate him even today in his radical lifestyle. And there are three things I want to share with you this morning and emphasize, and and just to ease your mind, it has nothing to do with eating bugs, okay? Here's the very first thing, and that is to recognize that you have a higher calling. I mean, hundreds of years before John the Baptist was ever born, uh, Isaiah uh, the prophet, Malachi the prophet, wrote about John's mission. In fact, he said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Some of you may actually remember some of those words because they find themselves into Handel's Messiah. Have you heard those words even sung? See, John knew from an early age, and he was set apart as a Nazarene, hair grew long, never shaved, never cut his hair, lived out in the wilderness, eating bugs and honey, all of that kind of stuff. He knew he had a purpose. He knew he had a message to tell other people. His purpose was to prepare people for a personal encounter with Jesus. And he did it by preaching a a relatively simple sermon. His sermon was really only two points. Point one, repent. Point two, experience God's forgiveness. Amen. Let's take a collection. There's a little bit more to it than that, though, isn't there? Now, you and I also have a higher calling. We have an obligation to this world to share the message God has shared with us. Our message ought to be the same message that John proclaimed, and it needs to be biblical, and it needs to be balanced. Now, I've been in all kinds of churches in my ministry life, and I've heard all kinds of sermons, good, bad, and ugly. And what I've noticed is that a lot of sermons, and I will confess to probably falling into this every once in a while myself, but they kind of lean towards one of two extremes. Some preachers blast sin loud and long. I mean, they preach hellfire and damnation, and they hardly ever mention the mercy of God at all. I mean, other preachers make no mention whatsoever of sin or repentance. They just talk about how God loves us just as we are in spite of all of our failures and in spite of all of our weaknesses. Now, I've got to tell you, both concepts are true. And they both need to be preached equally. I mean, just think about sin for a moment. Sin is just plain ugly through and through. Sin breaks the heart of God. Sin ruins the lives of people. 
if you fail to repent of your sin, it will ultimately destroy you. And I can probably add there are some seriously negative eternal consequences to unrepented sin. And it's not so much a question of God punishing you for your sin, because sin actually brings about its own punishment. I mean, think, for example, when a mom or dad says to a little kid, don't touch the hot stove, and the little guy does it anyway, he disobeys and touches the hot stove, what happens? Child gets burned. Who burned the child? Was it an angry, vindictive parent? No. The hot stove burned the child. The loving parent tried to encourage that little guy not to touch the stove in the first place. That's why we need to tell the truth about sin. Sin is horrible. But if that's all we preach about, you're going to walk away feeling pretty beat down. And feel like life is really pretty miserable. That's why we also need to teach the truth about repentance. I mean, simply feeling guilty is not repentance. Oh, I feel so guilty and ashamed. Well, you haven't repented yet. Well, I'm sorry I got caught. Well, sorry I got caught is not repentance either. Repentance literally is an about face. It's going in the opposite direction. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. And metanoia literally means to change your mind. When you repent, you're walking this direction, and suddenly you think, hold it, that's wrong. You change the way you think, and because you change the way you think, you decide then to change the way you're going. Now, and I tell you, repentance is not a negative experience. It's a positive experience. When you repent, you stop doing things that are capable of creating misery and turning you towards something that brings joy and fulfillment. And when you repent, you turn away from stuff that would destroy your life and you turn to the one that will give you life. So I say repentance is not a negative message. When we encourage other people to repent, we're not saying repent because you're so evil, wicked, bad, and nasty. We're saying, repent, friends, because God is so good. I can tell you, repentance is also not a punishment. Repentance is actually a privilege. And we need to tell the truth about repentance. We need to tell the truth about forgiveness. And see, John's message wasn't just about the ugliness of sin. It was about the beauty of God's forgiveness. When was the last time you really were kind of overwhelmed by the sense of sin in your life. Yeah, I know, this morning. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, did you also feel overwhelmed by the love and the grace and the mercy of God? I mean, that's, that's the cool part of it. I mean, John did not whitewash sin. He called sin exactly what sin was. But he didn't gloss over the forgiveness of God. See, when a person has ruined his or her life, what message do they need to hear most? I think about this in family context sometimes. You know, mom and dad sit there and they see their child doing something really dumb that's really ruining their life. And the kids know it. 
They don't need mom and dad to continue to harass them and harangue them and point it out and hold it over their head. Yeah, if they don't recognize the sin, maybe they need to point out the sin, but then they need to point out where forgiveness is. To turn it around and make it go the other way. It's not repent because you're so bad. It's repent because God is so good. People need to know that forgiveness is available. You need to be told that God will show you mercy. You need to be told that you can experience a brand new, fresh start. And if that person turns away from that sin that was destroying them, he experiences God's forgiveness, which has the power to renew him. That's our message that we need to carry to people in this world. He who conceals his sins will, does not prosper. That's Psalm 28. But Psalm 28 goes on and says, But whoever confesses it and renounces them finds mercy. Law and gospel right there. That's point number one, friends. We have a higher calling in this life. It's a message that we need to find a way of sharing with this world. It's not a message of anger. It's not a message of judgment. It's a message of hope. And it's a message of deliverance. Life can be better. But it's better in Jesus. And that is a radical idea. Here's the second thing. Hold yourself to a higher standard. As I mentioned earlier, John the Baptist lived in the desert. He wore funny clothes, ate funny food. Anybody here ever eaten a locust intentionally? I would have thought Jimmy Kunkel had. Chocolate covered, yeah. You had to get it down there. I've never intentionally done it that I know of. But I want you to notice something. He didn't expect everybody to do that. He never said, if you want to be right with God, you got to wear funny clothes and eat bugs and honey. That was a standard that he set for himself and not for everyone else. He didn't impose his lifestyle, if you will, on other people. He made some radical choices about this lifestyle, and he realized that these choices were above and beyond the call of duty, but they were not the heart of his message. So you probably ought to ask yourself, then why did he do it? Why did he expect more from himself than maybe he expected of other people? I think the, the answer is really pretty simple. Holding himself to a higher level gave his message more credibility. This morning in Bible class we said we sometimes we need to really get the incarnational part right before we can do the presentational part. We need to straighten out our lives in Christ so that the, our lives in Christ give us the ability to present the gospel so people don't see a double standard here. Now, there are three ways, I think, that John gives us. And I put them up there for you. One is to be willing to sacrifice comfort. Now, John chose to live in the desert and sleep in a cave. He didn't have to. I mean, with the kind of crowds that John attracted, he could have taken up a couple of love offerings, you know, relocated his ministry headquarters to some high-rise in Jerusalem. He could have been home every night for a comfortable camel steak dinner. He could have slept until noon. He could have preached a couple of sermons. He could have baptized a few Gentiles or Jews and gone to sleep in a big, comfortable bed. But he didn't do those things because he knew that his mission in life was not about creating some sort of easy, cushy, 
experience for himself. It was all about introducing people to the Messiah. He lived in the desert. Why? Because it took him away from the distractions of day-to-day life. It enabled him to not only focus on God, it enabled him to focus on his message and not on his status as a successful evangelist. I sometimes wonder how much stuff we would need to clear out of our lives so that we could more fully focus on God and focus on our message. Here's the second thing. He says, put a lid on materialism. In John's day, uh, priests had a habit of wearing really big, fancy, lavish robes. I mean, trimmed in gold and silver and all kinds of stuff. I mean, in contrast to this, what's John wearing? He got a simple tunic made out of camel hair. He realized that things, there are things that are more important than what you actually possess. I mean, too often, we use our clothes or our possessions as weapons to impress people. Sometimes we even use them to intimidate other people in order to create this aura of success. John was not the least bit concerned with appearances. Didn't care what he looked like. Didn't care what other people thought about when they saw how he dressed. Why? Because he was concerned with the content of his life and he was concerned with the message of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not here to tell you you've got to get rid of all your possessions. But I have a sneaking feeling a lot of us could do away with a lot of them anyway. I'm just suggesting that you have to kind of reevaluate your, your attitude sometimes towards material possessions and look for ways that you can be held to a higher standard in this area. He also, I'd say, starve your appetites. Now, as you can tell by looking at me, there's nothing wrong with a good meal. And uh, God is fortunate enough to marry somebody who knows how to cook good meals most of the time. (laughs) Now, she knows the meal I was talking about last night. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, there's, there, there's nothing inherently spiritual about eating bugs either. I, you know, go out and eat grasshoppers or locusts. That doesn't somehow make you glow or get, get a halo. Uh, I mean, John chose to eat a, a simple diet because he wanted to control his appetites. He didn't want his appetites to control him. And, and there's, there is power in, in self-discipline. I read something the other day. It said, you want to make Satan tremble? Fast. That's kind of a shocking thing. I have to, I have to read a little bit more about that. But he says, you know, fasting drives the devil crazy because he knows you're suddenly serious. It's self-discipline. You don't require all this stuff in order to, to do stuff, and it might even drive you to do stuff you don't want to do. I, mean, I had a friend who used to drink 12, at least 12 Dr. Peppers every day. Uh, Yeah, he's hyper. Uh, He he suddenly decided that this indicated some form of personal weakness, and he vowed to give him up, and he quit it. Cold turkey. Now, I can tell you, there's nothing sinful about drinking Dr. Pepper or Pepsi or Coke or whatever, but he just discovered 
that there's power in the ability to say no to an appetite, and he just kind of chose to, you know, live a little bit higher standard. This radical lifestyle that you and I are called to as Christians means that we live a life of sacrifice. We live a life of discipline so we can concentrate what our focus on God and pursue our higher calling, which is to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing. <clears throat> Submit to a higher authority. Now, John was a great guy. I mean, Jesus said he was the greatest guy ever born of a woman. I mean, many people, in fact, thought he was the Jewish Messiah. They came up, are you, are you Elijah? Are, have you come back from the dead? Are you Jesus? I mean, this happens to great people. I mean, people want to elevate you to levels of status that you don't deserve. I mean, for some leaders, it's more than they can handle. They listen to crowds and they begin to believe the hype. They begin to think they're better than everybody else. Now, John refused to do that. In verse 7 of what Jimmy read to you before, he said, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. See, John always kept in mind that his position in life was secondary to the Messiah. He wasn't there building his own little kingdom. That's why every once in a while, I don't know, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with this, but sometimes when people say, well, that's Pastor Kolb's church, I always feel like, no, nah, it's not. <laughs> Sorry, the, the day it becomes my church is the day we're in big trouble. But, you know, we sometimes associate that person with that church. And sometimes we can lose focus on the fact that maybe it just slid right out of God's hands into somebody else's hands. We need to keep life in proper perspective. When Jesus began his ministry, John summarized his words. When he found out that Jesus was coming down the road, what did he say? He, Jesus, must increase. I need to decrease. That, that, there's a principle that absolute power destroys absolutely. So John made certain that he never deluded himself into thinking that he had absolute power, that he was God's greatest gift to the kingdom. I mean, he lived his life in submission and authority to God. Now, I think nothing is more dangerous than for a man to think he's too powerful to face the consequences. And we see that attitude all the time, way too much in politicians and athletes and entertainers and business people. And we've just watched some of these people's lives just kind of unravel before our very eyes. But in Romans chapter 12, 3, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say that every one of you, Myself, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Some of you remember the boxer Muhammad Ali. Uh, Muhammad Ali uh, made a career of calling himself the greatest. Ran around spotted that I am the greatest. It was good hype, but it wasn't necessarily true and no re respect uh, disrespect when I say this, but in life we've seen him face an opponent today that will ultimately defeat him. It's called Parkinson's disease. I mean, Muhammad Ali once bragged that he was more famous than Jesus. The Beatles once bragged that they were more famous than Jesus. Now, whether they were or weren't at that particular time, the fact remains that they were not. No one is greater than Jesus. No one 
is going to get out of this life, I mean, their only hope in this life and the life to come is to submit oneself to the Lordship of Jesus. See, in contrast, John, the greatest man who ever lived, but not in his own mind. He never forgot that there is one person more powerful than he, the person who, I mean, he couldn't even tie the shoestrings on his shoes. I mean, Jesus, friends, introduced a radical concept when he said, whoever wants to become the greatest among you must first become what? Your servant. That's why I'm here today, friends, to simply say Christianity, being a Christ follower, is a radical lifestyle. And we are called to live this radical lifestyle. It calls us to be servants. It calls us to spend the rest of our life you know, pursuing a higher calling, to hold ourselves to a higher standard, and to submit ourselves to a higher authority. And that higher authority, of course, is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May God grant that, and may God be with us in our pursuit of this radical lifestyle. Amen.